So welcome to our next episode of the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're bringing you an episode that was recorded live at the Harvard Macy Program for Educators in the Health Professions in October 2020. As you know, this was conducted virtually, and it gave us the opportunity to record the proceedings, and I think you're in for a treat. A lot has been said about the pandemic, and this episode is a discussion between two clinical and educational leaders at Boston Children's Hospital, and it involves uh, both a discussion of the actions they took during the pandemic, but also a reflection on how this sits with the principles of leadership and change from John Cotter and others uh, that we've examined at Harvard Macy. So Liz Armstrong kicks off the episode with some introductions and some framing of the topic. All right. Well, welcome back from uh, Project Groups. I mm-hmm. hope that you've had uh, a successful planning session today on how you're going to continue this work as you go back home and you've shared with one another action plans. Uh, we are very fortunate this afternoon to sort of have the capstone large group activity um, bring together three Harvard Macy alums. I give all the Harvard Macy alums credit as they teach in in all of our programs. And uh, it's going to be a conversation, a conversation with two leaders at Harvard Medical School, Boston. They they have agreed to work with Vic, and you met Vic Brazel yesterday. So she's in Queensland. It's very early in the morning for her. And for uh, the two other gentlemen on the screen with us today, Peter Waters. Hi, Peter. Hello. Peter is the chair of orthopedic um, orthopedics at Boston Children's. And then we have Peter Weinstock. We have two Peters. Peter Weinstock. Hi there. Peter hey, is a care physician and also the director of the simulation program, a very large and distinguished program at Boston Children's. And he takes those ideas around the world. He also has a very interesting innovation lab, which it's something to learn a little bit more about. These three people, Vic and Peter and Peter, have agreed to have a conversation with one another about what happens in a scenario, scenario like the one we're living in, where a large change is forced upon us and leaders have to adjust to those changes within their organization, uh, mindful of carrying the good work they do forward, but in a very different situation. And uh, we, we have asked them to draw on the work of Cotter and then, of course, their own personal experiences. So this is a conversation. And uh, Vic, it, I am sure this is going to be fun uh, for you and for us. Uh, we really look forward to the next 45 minutes with you. Thank you all. Yes, thank you so much, Liz. And you've put that really nicely in context. Uh, and I will sort of build on that and give people a little bit of a roadmap for the next 45 minutes. Uh, as Liz said, we're going to be thinking about leadership and change during these times over the last six to nine months with the pandemic. But we're not just going to think about this in terms of talking about the stories themselves and the examples. They're interesting, and I suspect they're paralleled by a lot of other people's experience. But we're really going to use the example of what uh, Peter Waters and Peter Weinstock have done at Boston Children's and use them to perhaps reflect back to what we've been talking about over the day in terms of leadership and change management. 
So what I'm going to do shortly is ask each of them in turn to give us a little sense of context to explain a bit about their institution, talk about uh, what they changed and why they did what they did, and then we will take them this next step to think about what does this tell us or teach us about leadership and change uh, and what sort of where do we go from here? Will some of these changes be sustained? So in terms of then the interaction with the uh, Harvard Macy group here, we're hoping that you are just as active as I've seen you've been on the chat box and I will take on the primary responsibility of following that and I will uh, at various times sort of stop the conversation that we're having between the three of us and maybe bring in some of the thoughts that you've got, some of the examples and hopefully some of the experience because as I said, we really know that this has been a, a challenge that many people have done some amazing work during. So with that in mind, uh, Peter Waters, I might get you to start us off. Give us a little sense about your context, where you work and your role there, and then tell us uh, how you sort of went into the pandemic and, and how you started to do the changes that you thought were necessary. Uh, thank you, Vic. And it's a pleasure uh, to be here, Liz, Holly, uh, you know, Todd, everyone. It's amazing to see the gallery in front, and, and hopefully we'll enjoy ourselves and learn something from one another uh, in the next short period of time. So I, I kind of have about seven jobs at Children's. Uh, my main one is to run the orthopedic surgery department, but I'm an active surgeon in the orthopedic department's very active. In context, we see about 115,000 outpatients a year, uh, very busy surgically, trauma uh, level all the way to uh, tertiary and quaternary care provided for kids locally, but also nationally and internationally. Um, where we were at the time was literally looking anxiously uh, to New York City because they were just in front of the wave. Uh, our friends in California had let us know what they were going through in Seattle and West Coast, but we were looking to New York City constantly and trying to figure out whether we would, uh, that uh, tidal wave would get up above the level of our nose and over our head. And, and so we had a little bit of advantage over New York that we uh, had a short period of time to plan. Uh, and that became a very collaborative plan with all the Harvard hospitals, all the Boston hospitals trying to work that out. Internally, uh, literally on uh, about March 17th, we had to look at thousands of kids, for example, who were scheduled for surgery and, and break them down into categories of who had to have an operation, for example, now. Uh, and so the first thing we tried to do is say, we're not going to shut down our emergency care, and we're going to define our urgent care into, if you are going to be worse in a week or in three weeks, how are we going to figure out how to take care of you? And so we be immediately began to prioritize as I'm sure others did. And then uh, in, in short time, the Children's Hospital Association of America, the Department of Public Health started to come up with similar criteria. But we had to get right out in front of that. Um, we had to work, uh, as you did in Queensland, with like Peter's simulation team to try and figure out how were our employees going to be safe uh, as we did this. Uh, we had to reorganize thousands and thousands of patients who were scheduled. You know, 12,000 patients a month come into orthopedics and sports medicine is just one example. But how do, how do we take care of those folks? Um, and, and we had to learn how to be really nimble, uh, really fast. Uh, and, and so we had to break down our hierarchy. So when you look at Cotter's things, you, you can just walk it right through almost, you know, the, the 
the urgency was COVID. We, nobody had to create it. It was there. And then we had to figure out how to make our way uh, down through that. Uh, uh, so, Peter, I'm, I might even just jump in here because uh, it sounds like just to sort of put a little framework around it, like a lot of change, you had the new challenges, but you also had to reorganise your business as usual. And in your case, that was a lot about, for instance, elective procedures, uh, emergency presentations that had nothing to do with COVID. Uh, and one of the queries which uh, I've got, but which also has come up pretty early in the chat box, is who was the we that was making these decisions? Uh, and I will frame that up by also saying that I know a lot of people had people with bright ideas, but how do you stop them in and, and have a sort of concerted approach? So who was your we? So at different levels. So the, the, the top we really was a group of all of the chiefs and the vice presidents and the CEO and COO and the chief nursing officer that initially were meeting twice a day and then once a day, and also a emergency manage group, management group, which was immediately assembled. And so I, I was in both of those groups, um, but, but there were uh, people who were really in charge. And, the, and, then they, and then filtering on down with the surgeon in chief to organize the operating rooms and, um, you know, from there. So it turns out then, then there were a lot of we's, and a lot of we's had to figure out how to talk to one another. Um, on a pretty regular basis, but not only talk to one another, how to listen to one another, which became critically important was the listening part. Absolutely. And it sounds as though some of your we's were people with what we might call designated leadership, uh, official kind of leadership roles. But I suppose one of the other things that uh, is in balance here is the people that kind of stepped up and did informal leadership and took on roles. Uh, I guess you probably had to balance that out a little bit as well. It's not just the people with the stripes on their epaulets, but you're calling for leadership from a whole range of people here. Yeah. So one of the things that we had to basically, uh, you had to have a true north and the true north was care of the patient. And you had to have a, a clear, what are we doing? And it was safety, safety, safety were our clear things. And then you had to understand that even if you had a bright idea, you couldn't just be the CEO of your own life, that it, that it had to go through channels that made sense, first and foremost, for infectious disease, you know, so safety of the employees and safety of the patients. But we would, everybody would be listening. Um, and then as you're talking about, it, it broke down hierarchy pretty quickly because everybody came in and participated uh, in a very fortunately effective way. It could have been very disruptive. It wasn't because I think that to me, the, the best that I saw in COVID is everybody quickly got to the why of what they were doing why they chose the career that they did, why they were here, why they were in this moment. And they weren't stuck so much in the what and the how, unless it was going to help the why. Mm, I think that's probably a pretty nice framework. And uh, it also probably makes us reflect a little bit on the session that I know uh, the group has done with Tom Eretz on negotiation, because it sounds like you would have had some of that negotiation uh, well and truly in play. Uh, so I guess thinking really explicitly about that Cotter framework. As you said, you've got this uh, compelling, urgent need for change. You've got your guiding coalition. Uh, why, maybe one of the things before we move on to getting Peter Waters, Peter Weinstock's view on this, 
uh, is about the communication because one of those things that the articles tell us about is the need for communication. And I think many of us found we were getting heaps of emails from lots of people and then the changes in the PPE would be different, different days. How did you manage that uh, communication strategy? So uh, the first was... uh what we're doing right now was a godsend. Uh, thank God this technology had been invented because I don't know how we would have made it without uh, this, uh, literally. Uh, the second was that um, we just had to have uh, arbitrators and deciders. And so there was an, uh, a daily AOD administrative uh, that came out that would change. And we, and we informed everybody this may change in three hours or six hours or 12 hours, but this is what we're doing right now. And so, so be ready for change because it's going to change. We just don't know how fast it is. And the only last thing I'll add, which was, um, I, I, I'll just say from myself, and I was deliberate in this, but I didn't know how it was going to work. Uh, I started sending out uh, very frequent uh, missives as the chief that were very, um, uh, emotional, uh, real, uh, revealing things that I learned from a leadership program I took at West Point of, of how to actually uh, connect with people's emotion, but provide optimism rather than fear and anxiety. And, and it turned out that that missive was quite helpful, much more so than I thought it was going to be. But on a regular basis, people would latch onto that and that would uh, take away some of their anxiety and concerns. And that, and so that then, the, the whole hospital then took on a little bit more of, instead of the granular tactical, it, it took on a little bit more. We recognize this is really hard and we're worried about your wellness and, and here's what we're going to do to help that. That was important. Mm, and I think that is hugely important. And perhaps recognition maybe of when Cotter wrote those articles uh, that wasn't as emphasized, but really thinking about staff well-being, uh, it was probably always important, but I think it's become much more explicit now. And I know I was getting some of those same emails that it sounds like you were sending from our uh, head of medical services. And it made such a difference, just this sense of vulnerability, uh, but of optimism and of community about what we were trying to do. So that's been a really lovely sort of illustration of what was happening at that sort of macro level. I might get Peter Weinstock to come in here now. Uh, now, one of the things is these challenges look different depending on where you're sitting in the organisation. So, Peter, give us a little sense of context again. Uh, not everybody knows about your marvellous program and then how you saw this problem and how you then helped enable some of the things Peter Waters was talking about. Sure. Thanks, Vic. And it, uh, I also want to just say thank you for having me. Uh, it continues to be a highlight of the year to participate in the Macy. I feel like I'm just still a scholar from 2005, um, and it's just great to still be a part of this. So thanks. Great to see everyone as I flip through the gallery images. Um, let me tell you a little bit about where we were coming from. Uh, so I'm an intensivist, uh, ICU doc by day, and at night I uh, executive direct the SIM program. And just um, as a brief overview, the program originated really as a hospital-based in situ program. And I say that just because our heritage is such that we really were about translating simulation technology to the bedside. How do we create the largest impact uh, in a just-in-time, just-in-place kind of mentality? Uh, and so we developed um, really around what we called a clinical service partnership model, as opposed to a purely education model. 
Um, and that evolved into a really a platform that we've utilized for many years. And I think it's, it helped us as COVID uh, 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 started to present itself, which is a, it's a five level platform. Level one is really workforce expansion. It's a very large platform of work. Level two is a facilities design kind of engineering uh, level. Level three is team training and root cause analysis. And as I'm mentioning these, you can see where we could sort of easily pivot these over to, to COVID needs. Level four was actually live video capture. And we've been doing a lot of work with Peter and his group uh, capturing live video in the operating rooms. And then lastly, we, as Liz mentioned, we have an engineering facility that does three-dimensional printing and uh, really um, patient-specific type of simulator development. So we had that facility sort of ready uh, to be deployed uh, with the ability to do essentially just-in-time engineering as COVID needed. Um, so that was a little bit of where we were coming from and in the infrastructure that we were um, using at the time. The other thing I was going to mention is speaking a little bit to the updates Peter gave, uh, a premise that we took as we embarked on all of this really was something we were very familiar with from our debriefing strategy, which was that we always talk about debriefing as debriefers as having really like five major qualities. And they really revolve around vulnerability, um, uh, transparency, honesty, uh, no certainty, but just curiosity. And we talk a lot about this idea that great debriefers fundamentally just love their learners. And it, it really felt as COVID hit that more than anything, we needed to lean back on the love we had for each other. And um, we felt like we could be a bit of a conduit for that as a SIM program. So we had to really lean heavily on these concepts of psychological safety. Just to get all of Cotter's eight steps to move, we had to be extremely psychologically safe. We had to use a lot of emotional intelligence and we had to use adult learning to uh, really create comfortable environments for this very uncomfortable moment in the hospital and to, to be able to um, uh, manage it. So I just yeah. say that as sort of the infrastructure, both from the standpoint of the program itself, how we were sort of designed, but also this underlying philosophy uh, mm. around psychological safety and, and caring for each other that I think made a big difference. So at risk of getting very granular very early, but I think that's such an important thing, but I think it'd be nice for us to understand, Peter, uh, what that really looks like. So is it you go in as a simulation service to a particular clinical area, you're running a simulation, which might be something quite simple, like yeah. we're putting on our PPE and we're practicing doing some airway management. Uh, but it sounds like what you were doing was this technical aspects of the changes that were needed, but you were also really having mm -hmm. to have conversations that allowed people to share their anxieties and fears. Uh, is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Tell us what that looks like. Yeah, it, there's exactly that. And, and a lot of what Peter was describing, we're talking about the whys. The simulator program really served as a catalyst to identifying whys. And uh, often some of them were very obvious and some of them were less obvious. And so the whole uh, concept of experiential, immersive environments became very valuable. So much so that um, we ran our first simulation actually was around PPE, as it was for many programs. And what was amazing is we had lots of ideas about PPE early on, about videos people could log on to, and we had little cognitive aids and 
But then when you brought them in and you had, the, had them actually don PPE, particularly when they're dealing with an urgent simulation, the whole thing fell apart. And so there was this eye-opening moment that created an inherent sense of urgency and relevancy because it was experiential. And what was amazing from that is what we found is what we started to call a cascading needs assessment. So just by these eye-opening moments in the simulator uh, around PPE, for example, all of a sudden now cohorts of people said, wait a minute, we really need to look at airway related to PPE. So we did that. And then within the airway simulations, someone said, wait a minute, how are we getting these patients here to do these airways? And we created a brand new set of uh, projects around transport. So there was this eye-opening sense of urgency and relevancy that we were able to leverage using the simulators. And the flip side of that was then engaging in safe conversations where people didn't feel threatened or incompetent around a brand new set of competencies related to pandemics uh, that, that allowed those conversations to be both uh, informative, but also therapeutic uh, yeah. on, on some level. So yeah, I think absolutely. the ur- the urgency piece of Cotter's was a good fit uh, for the simulator as a way to get at that uh, very readily and very authentically. Yes, um, absolutely. And I think what you're saying also means it's a shame that John Cotter didn't meet Amy Edmondson uh, 20 years ago and wrap in psychological safety as part of change management because I feel like it's such a natural fit and what you describe is really the uh, manifestation of that. Um, Just as a pause, and I know uh, Keith Wilson's there and he'll probably look this up and post it as fast as possible, but this, if if we're also looking at this through a quality improvement lens, we would start to think about concepts and the difference between work as imagined and work as done. And I think what you're describing is really important, isn't it? We had lots of guidelines. People were pretty quick to type up the new COVID guidelines, but the 12 pages, whether they really translated or whether they fell apart, as you described, was so important. And uh, what you're describing, also another publication of people are interested, Marette Dubay up in Canada did a lovely article about just what you're talking about, this need to do a sort of constant thematic analysis across simulation in an entire province and then feed that back into the learning for other people. So, uh, and, and this minute, yes, go for it. When, can I just jump in with something? Because you guys are really on a, a very important point. And then when I look at the chats, right? So we got this mixture of real anxiety that people are talking about. We got this mixture of unknowns, um, including unknowns that were coming out uh, in our country, obviously really uh, distorted views of what was known versus unknowns, but, but true unknowns even from the scholars. Um, and so an example of what Peter's talking about just around airway is, is we really struggle to know it, what is really an aerosol-generating procedure that's going to put people at risk, right? And so we had created a, a separate operating room. We have a smaller facility with 11 beds, six operating rooms to be a COVID-negative operating room area. But even in that COVID-negative operating room, particularly with limited testing, our plastic surgeons, our otolaryngologists, our anesthesiologists really weren't sure how much risk am I at and and what does that mean for my spouse or my children or for me? Uh, And the world was full of lots of stories and different societies were coming out with proclamations that were changing. And so you had to have a, a, a set of people whose job it was 
and this was the emergency management, to try and sort through all that and listen to that and maybe change what we are doing. And those changes actually had to happen pretty quickly. But at the same time, like, you know, in that one of the nurses in the OR's sister died of COVID. And that flashes up your anxiety to the moon. And how do you how do you do that? So the simulation training brought anxiety way down. And these conversations tried to get us into a zone where people felt safe enough that they could do their jobs well, because they really wanted to do their job. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you say, this overlay, and it was a very real threat. There have been a couple of comments in the chat box about preparing for Ebola and the similarities, but also the differences. Uh, COVID was a very tangible thing. Many people knew people who'd had COVID, who'd been unwell with COVID, and many people knew staff members who'd even died of COVID around the world. So this was a a real challenge. I suppose it might be a a timely uh, point at which to sort of talk about some of the downsides. And people have asked, did you also have to manage, uh, for instance, staff layoffs uh, and or were there times when really big mistakes were made and we had to sort of somehow avoid our sunk costs fallacy and, and not just keep on going in a direction that may not have been productive. So maybe I'll start with you, Peter Waters, on that, where there's some really big sort of downsides to these changes that you feel uh, were problematic. Um. So I I think that we anticipated that we would make some wrong decisions. And if we put in place the right people, that we could turn the corner, you know, quickly on that. So there were some decisions in which, uh, you know, for example, it was mandated what the anesthesiologist and the otolaryngologist should do. And why don't they just toe the line on this policy and what's wrong with them, only to realize actually they were right. And, and, and we needed to adapt what they were doing uh, for safety for them and, and really, in a sense, for the patients. Uh, so, so that would, uh, to me, would be an example of, uh, you know, trying to not be so dogmatic, but still trying to understand this is what we got to do now and then make our way forward. We yeah. were really lucky because we're a children's hospital. The, the adult facilities had much higher risk to their healthcare workers. Um, in this, but a lot of what we ended up doing, for example, is we shared our ventilators around the city because what we didn't need, we sent our respiratory therapists, a bunch of our uh, trainees actually flipped jobs and moved into ICUs and the ventilators went with them and did other things like that. Mm. And that's probably a a good point to bring Peter Weinstock back in because what you're starting to talk about there is rapid workforce change and deployment, people going into different roles. And I know that uh, lots of health professions educators were involved in this. Simulation was one of many ways that people were reshaping their workforce. Uh, Peter Weinstock, did you want to speak a little bit to that about how you got people ready for new roles, potential or actual? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Uh, it felt like we were doing it at two different levels. Your question, Vic, it's as a director of one of the programs within the hospital, I felt like I was helping change management. I'm going to say externally. I mean that to external to the SIM program. So I was trying to use SIM as a catalyst for change management above. I'm literally physically looking above me. And then at the same time, I was trying to manage, and this didn't wasn't intuitive to me right away, but it became very clear that there was change management that had to happen within my program in order to strengthen it and give it infrastructure and scaffolding to be able to then serve the hospital. So I felt like I was trying to manage on both sides, but I was using Cotter's principles 
in retrospect, when I look at it, I was using Cotter's principles in both directions. I was using the SIM program to help catalyze Cotter's principles up above into the hospital and then uh, from within as well. And what specifically is it related to the SIM program from within, it forced us to do something different. It forced us to look at the SIM program not as a mannequin shop, but instead to look at the SIM program as the rudiments of its assets. In other words, what is it fundamentally that we can offer here? What do we do well? And it really meant going to a much deeper dive to say, we can do business development. Well, business development is negotiation. Well, let's take the business development people and put them towards being change management coalition. Let's make them change management directors. And before we knew it, we kind of rejiggered a lot of our base assets, which is a healthy exercise. And we're able to then reformulate it into a very different neo team that could serve the hospital in various ways. So, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And it also addressed a pressure that was inherent within all programs of the hospital, which was what is an essential service? And looking at the SIM program in that lens uh, made us really look at how do we create the most essential service to the hospital uh, and, and kind of reinvent ourselves um, in a way that'll be most effective. And mm. it, it has amounted essentially to a, almost a rebranding and remissioning of what the SIM, SIM program is. Um, so that's a healthy exercise, a little silver lining that comes out of COVID is a chance to rethink about your program, to think about your institution and who you really are. Um, and COVID was a, a pressure test of that. Um, so just kind of an interesting around personnel and, and staff. Yeah, absolutely. And it might be good for the uh, folks online if you can give us a tangible example of that, Peter. Um, what, what, what's an example of a simulation event that you would be doing now much more of than you were previously? Well, in, in general, this idea of proactive, what we are now calling Sim Protect, but this idea of proactive testing of systems, of, uh, of uh, processes, so we created essentially a PDSA-based cycle five-step process, which is a needs assessment followed by a tabletop exercise, followed by a simulation to test the hypothetical process, look to see what works, what doesn't work, uh, then codify that process and turn it into a training mechanism uh, to, to scale it. That is something that we did relatively sporadically uh, pre-COVID, and now it's uh, becoming more and more uniform. It's becoming more uh, uh, a mandatory requirement. How could we not? Um, and that, that's been interesting to see how COVID has catalyzed that. Uh, that mm. but, but also it spoke to this idea of uh, vision for change, the sort of step three of Cotter, where a lot of the way we did that is create clear, almost standardized, protocolized change management. So it's like, okay, you want to do this? Well, there's a five-step process for that. Um, and, and what it will emerge with now is a process that can be applied more uniformly across the organization. Mm, all right. Well, I might bring uh, Peter in here just to distract him from the chat box. <laughs> well, uh, chat box is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it is. There's lots of great things in there. Yeah. Uh, but can I get you to maybe reflect on some of the things that uh, Peter Weinstock's just been talking about in terms of the workforce changes and development? Uh, there are some persisting questions there about, you know, some of this costs money as well. 
Uh, but also one of the things we haven't touched on yet from Cotter is about celebrating the wins. Uh, how did you manage to, you were talked for earlier about maintaining optimism, but were you able to celebrate wins when things were changing so quickly? Uh, so the, l- let me touch the money part first, because I just think it matters. Um, so we uh, literally as a collective from the CEO and the board of trustees on down, said that um, we will be hopeful that this is a sharp V, but we're not going to furlough employees. We're not going to lay off people. We're going to keep everybody in place for a minimum of three months uh, and probably six months, no matter what, and reassess. Um, and, And that was a great relief to people to know that they weren't at risk to lose their job. Um, and so that not only do we care about them of making them safe, but we are going to be certain that they could pay their bills and they, they could do that. That, that was enormously powerful uh, and endearing. So I, I think that was one essential thing that you just have to decide. We lost a lot of money, um, but we actually, because we had rapid cycle change management in place, we actually came out pretty sharply out of the V and, and back up uh, in a safe way. And so we're now in our phase four C of operating room escalation and safe. And we we're now more than five, almost six months without a staff getting COVID at work. So for us, that's, that's been very good. People have kept their jobs and they've been safe and we've, we've come back and our patients have been taken care of. Um, you know, uh, workforce change. We just said to people in order to keep your job, we may have to retrain you because your job may go away. So for example, we had less than 1% telemedicine in orthopedics and sports medicine. And within three weeks, we had more than 85% of our uh, patients were on telehealth. That required just an escalation of of teams of people to flip and figure out how to do that and set up appointments and, and the rest of that. So we could evaluate like which patients need to be seen now in person and which patients can be delayed, and also to alleviate their fears, you know, am I okay, et cetera. Now, interesting, it turned out that the Zoom visits were quite good. We're never going back because uh, some of them are very effective. Uh, so that, that's one of those permanent changes that will be there. So I don't know if that answers your question enough, Vic, but those were a couple examples for us. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely on the money, I think, in terms of thinking about how people recover. And it's a nice segue into the, maybe the last topic I wanted to cover uh, before we open it up again, and that is to think about where we go from here, uh, because it sounds like we've learned some things about change. Uh, it sounds like we're going to have more changes that will be different again. And we've had lessons both for our health services and change processes as well as um, the pandemic itself. So I'm going to ask you both to talk about that. And just while you're doing that, I did want to point out Mark Atlas's uh, idea here to play Here Comes the Sun every time someone gets extubated. That seems like a good way to celebrate some wins. Thank you for that, Mark. And the other thing I'll just sort of pick up on while we're just talking a little bit about medium is the message. Uh, AK said right at the beginning, this is just like a live podcast. And that's certainly the mindset I've taken into it. Uh, So one of the things that we did want to do today, as well as talk about leadership and change management, was just to illustrate that there's different ways of making a point in a large group presentation. So we thought this idea of having a live chat is another way of bringing out didactic points without necessarily having a single speaker supported by slides and other mediums. So in some ways, we're also hopefully giving some food for thought about format as much as we are about the message. Uh, But maybe we'll come back to this where to from here. So uh, Peter Weinstock, maybe you can kick us off. What have you learned about change? You've already spoken a little bit about that, uh, but where 
will you take this ongoing change process both internally, as you've talked about, but also in terms of the work that you do for the institution? Great question, Vic. I, I, I would say even almost even more intensely internally for myself, I think that the uh, lesson I've learned is uh, you, can, the, the, you can use these moments in time to, to obtain tremendous feedback about you. Uh, these are stre- real stressors uh, for a leader. And uh, it's an opportunity, if you look for it, to elicit lots of 360s about how am I doing. And I think that also is an opportunity for you to uh, share mental models, which I don't think leaders do all the time. I think they take for granted that their mental model is one that's shared among everyone, and sometimes it isn't. Uh, So that's been a real learning process for me, and I've become addicted to feedback uh, as a result of COVID. Uh, And I I feel like I am strengthened by it every time. My, My team's now getting tired of me asking. Um, so we have these weekly sim meetups where I have a section called what's on my mind. And, uh, it's a chance for me to be fully transparent about how I'm thinking about the program, how I'm thinking about each and every one of them and asking them to give me feedback. And it's amazing to see over the last six months, how it went from no green boxes to now they're fighting for green boxes. Uh, and so that's change management that's enduring, uh, and has been very exciting. The other piece that I mentioned, that's a little bit about just personal growth and, and what, how you can use this for, as a leader. Um, the, the other piece really has been the, um, the willingness to be open-minded uh, about what it is and who we are and how we can use these moments to adapt our programs to be even more lean and more effective to the institution. It's a moment to get out of an antiquated setting and say, wait, what, this, is, this is a disruptive technology moment. Uh, in its greatest sense. And so we're excited about uh, now being able to help the hospital in, in even more in new ways. Um, so that's a little bit about, a bit about the future going forward, uh, both at the ultra micro level and at the organizational level. Yes, I, I love this phrase, you become addicted to feedback, uh, which is probably a nice way to uh, build on that question for you, Peter Waters, as we're thinking about our closing comments here. Uh, what does this mean in terms of change for the future? What do you think you've learned? What are the fabulous things? And and how do you know that uh, you're winning or that you've done the right thing based on uh, Peter's comments or take further Peter's comments about feedback? Um, so so let me start there if I can, if it's okay. Um, you know, and you, you folks are experts on things like quality improvement, but this is not hypothesis-driven research, right? Um, so, we, so we have to really be analyzing what we're doing uh, pretty quickly and pretty transparently in order to sort that out, because uh, otherwise we'll be way down the road that we're not interested in. And so we, the, I think the major change for us was uh, what Peter's talking about, people's ability to listen better so that we didn't get too far off the mark. The second was people's ability to adapt. So for example, we started doing surgery elective, you know, and it really wasn't elective, urgent surgery that needed to be done in a timely way until nine o'clock at night and every Saturday and Sunday. And, And the reason was that's how we could socially distance our employees and our patients and still provided the necessary care. Uh, that they needed. And and so we brought project management teams in and they went through waiting rooms and they went through, you know, the operating rooms and they went through the emergency room, like I'm sure they did everywhere else. But, but then the surgeons, instead of pushing back, you know, the anesthesiologists, the nurses said, okay, we'll do this. And we still are doing 
Yeah, like I did surgery last Saturday and three Sundays ago, but we're still doing that as a part of all that. Um, so, uh, you know, understanding, uh, again, it's not all about me, it's about us or, or them was a really helpful uh, change for folks. Uh, but I go back to what Peter said, L- listening is absolutely critical because then you just didn't get too far off the mark. Um, which was really important for us. Uh, And and hopefully that stays. Like if I just had to file my annual chief's report, that was one of the things I put in the annual chief's report. Hopefully people don't forget how important this has been uh, to be doing this. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure that's a good thing to be doing because I don't think the changes have stopped anytime soon. Uh, We're going to have whatever happens next, we're going to have quite a long recovery phase with new challenges uh, in there. All right, well, I'm going to just sort of recap and then I'm actually going to give the sort of final reflections and thoughts to Liz uh, because I think she's been instrumental in most of our journeys in leadership and change management and thinking about that uh, connection uh, that she's had with the folks at the business school as well and learning about leadership and change. But I guess just to sort of recap, I think this has been a lovely way to think about change in an institution. As we said right at the beginning, this wasn't unique. I know so many of you in the Harvard Macy community were doing similar things, uh, maybe in different contexts, but really, you know, hats off because I know how much hard work people have done over the last nine months, both as health professional educators, but also as clinicians and those who support clinicians. Uh, It's really taught us all a lot of lessons. And I I like how both Peters have told us today about their personal journeys, as well as their team journeys, as well as their institutional uh, journeys. And just thinking about how we can apply those principles, because what was astounding to me personally in all of this was how much I went back to what I'd learned uh, at Harvard Macy and and other places about leadership and change and I thought wow this is really that in action. So with that in mind Liz I know we're due to finish up shortly but I thought you might have a few reflections for us uh, yourself. Well first of all thank you to Peter Waters, Peter Weinstock and Vic and as I listen to the three of you I am sitting here smiling shaking my head thinking this is really about becoming so much more human-centered in our institutions than we have typically uh, sort of uh, spoken about. Uh, We're usually speaking about measuring this and measuring that. And uh, in the silver lining cases that the scholars wrote, we had about 110, 120 silver lining cases That was the striking observation from all of those papers that the innovations that were launched uh, enhanced the human-to-human interactions in such very positive ways. And uh, we talked about that this morning uh, for Peter and Peter and Vic to know about. But uh, um, there were a couple of words that came out of your conversations that I would like to highlight, Um, just two probably. One is that the leader has to stay positive. Um, When Todd and I met the first time on Zoom to talk about the fact that the first time in 27 years, we weren't going to be running uh, a June course in the rotunda, in the classroom that we're all accustomed to using. And I think at first we, you know, wanted to cry, uh, but then he and I had to say to each other, but we will make it work. Uh, we're going to remain true to Harvard Macy. We're going to keep that community going. It won't be the same. 
that's okay. We've got to move on. Uh, but we stayed very positive. And we ended up building a team of Harvard Macy faculty who generously uh, helped us learn how to use all this technology, learn how to build community online. And for a much smaller class uh, in June, it was an enormous success. And people at the end of that course said, I felt so close to the people in my project group or my journal club, more so, Liz, than I did when we were sitting in the classrooms. So there's something that's, that can happen when we as leaders remain positive uh, and, and uh, move forward with the change. Change is going to happen all the time. Hopefully it's not lots of pandemics, but change has to happen if we're going to make improvements. And the last word I'd like to end with is the word Peter Weinstock used. And I almost want to cry when I say this. He talked about love. We ended up loving each other differently. Um, I think we all care about one another. You care about your colleagues, their health and well-being and their families. But I think in this environment where we all had our lives turned upside down around the world, and it wasn't our fault, it was just a virus, uh, but we had to deal with it. We learned that it was more important to say to someone, how are you doing today? How does it feel? Is your mom okay? Um, and I don't, think, um, I don't think we do that enough uh, when we're in the real world, but we really learned that that love and caring uh, made the difference. And it was just heartwarming for me to hear Peter talk about how the leadership of children's made sure that everyone felt safe. Um, as an HMI, you know, course director, uh, I didn't have the worries so much as you do about healthcare, but I wanted everyone in our community to feel that we were going to go on. Uh, life was going to be okay. Uh, so Thank you to the three of you. This has been just a joy to end the day, the large group sessions at least with you, on the note of positive thinking and love. I love you all. <laughs> Thank you, Liz, and uh, pleasure to be part of. 